greener on the other side. Caterpillar to a butterfly. It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. Hey, we're back eight minutes after the hour. Thank you so much for listening to Green and Growing here on 95.5 WSB. Last month, I had a conversation with Becky Griffin from the University of Georgia. She served as the coordinator for the Great Georgia Pollinator Census, and a lot of you participated in that. Well, I'm going to re-air that conversation now that we had last month so you can learn a little more about pollinators. And Becky's going to rejoin us at the end with updated data, updated science of how we all did during that census, what we counted, what we saw, and what it means for the future of pollinators in Georgia. Take a listen. Thank you for having me, Ashley. I'm excited to talk about this really fun, important project. You have worked all year long and working closely with schools and larger groups, too, just so we can get as much data as scientifically possible with folks' participation. First of all, tell me why these two days are the best time for us to count our pollinators. This is a project that encompasses um, ordinary Georgia citizens, and we need things blooming all over the state, so up in the mountains all the way to the coast. It is also a no-cost STEM project for schools. So we want to make sure that schools are in session. And so by putting all of those pieces of that puzzle together, we came up with the end of August for the count. So they were the same weekend last year. And that's really interesting that this is the second year that we've done this statewide. And I think it's so cool that there's a project like this that everybody in Georgia can come together for these same two days and really help out in the name of science, right? Right. And thank you. Thank you so much to the counters who have already counted. And thank you for those who are getting ready to look for some sunshine and head out to their garden. This project is like put a chair down in front of a plant, take 15 minutes, have a pen and paper, count what you see. I mean, this is like something so easy. There's no excuses to not do it. And look at the good you're doing. So let's walk folks through kind of what the process I know on the website, which I would love for folks to visit and follow along. You don't have to register to do it, but you do have to submit your counts to ggapc.org. So great Georgia, G-A-P-C, pollinator census.org. So yeah, walk us through kind of what to expect when we start this. Sure. So the first thing is to pick your plant. I tell people to find a plant that um, shows a lot of insect activity, maybe something that you already see some pollinators visiting. And we've had people submit using zinnias or black-eyed Susans. If you have some herbs that have already started putting out flowers Mm -hmm. like basil, that is an amazing pollinator attractor. Goldenrod is even blooming. So something in your yard that you see blooming. Get a chair, maybe some sweet tea, a pencil (laughs) and a paper. I love that. And you're going to, for 15 minutes, you're going to look at what insects land on that plant. Now, you may be thinking, I'm not an entomologist. I don't have the knowledge to do this. Well, we have fine-tuned the counting process that anyone can do it. And as you saw on the website, the insects that land on the plants go into different categories. So a carpenter bee, for example, which has a bald abdomen or a shiny hiney, as I like to tell the kids, that's one category. We have the bumblebees, those fuzzy bombus bees is another. Honeybees is one of the categories. And anything smaller than a honeybee goes in the small bee category. Hmm. And for those of us who are looking at the data, that is extremely important. We have over 4,000 native bees in Georgia. Wow. North, or North America, I'm sorry. A lot of people don't know that. They think honeybee is the only pollinating bee, but anything smaller than a honeybee 
really tells us how healthy our native bee population is. And, and then we have the wasp category, fly category, butterflies, and anything else that lands on that plant that you don't know, put it in the other insect category. So it's really simple and straightforward. So there are some insects that we may see, but they're not necessarily pollinators. Like they don't have the structure on their body to really carry the pollen as efficiently as bees do, right? Right. But technically, if we think about what pollination is, which is the movement of pollen from one plant to another, we can be pollinators when we work in our gardens. So things like wasps that hang out on those plants, maybe looking for a caterpillar or being a predator, they're moving from plant to plant. And even though they don't have that hairy structure to carry pollen, they're moving pollen back and forth. You know, I always used to think it was so neat, Becky, you know, I worked with Walter for about eight years as his producer in the Lawn and Garden Show. But when people were having trouble uh, with their summer vegetables, like trying to get the squash and trying to get the tomatoes, you know, they've got Mm -hmm. the flowers and then just nothing would happen with the flowers. Well, they weren't being pollinated. And he always had this tip or this trick of using the uh, eraser end of a pencil and you could just Mm -hmm. gently, you know, move the pollen yourself. And I thought that's really cool that we could do that you know, as humans and just kind of intercede Mother Nature a little bit. When I worked, um, before I worked with Extension, I managed a four-acre farm garden, and we had a bad year for pollinators, and I used a makeup brush. Oh, cool. Like an eyeshadow brush, yeah. That made me really appreciate my pollinators, I'll tell you. Yeah, (laughs) because they do the hard work. I mean, you've got even hummingbirds. Hummingbirds, you know, Mm -hmm. they love bright colored flowers, and you'll see them going. That's why feeders are red hummingbird feeders the nectar doesn't have to be red but that bright color is what they're so attracted to and you'll even see them but they work so hard they're not just sitting up in the trees and just flying around enjoying the day they've got work to do the categories again like it would be hard to break down there's so many categories of bees so tell us again how to kind of figure out what bee because carpenter bees are they kind of done are they have they almost died off no. Actually, they are um, one of our latest pollinators. They'll yeah. be around for quite a long time, and they um, are one of the first ones to come out. And we generally, they have a bad reputation. You know, actually, the way that they will uh, destroy, you know, our fence posts or things yes. as the female digs those holes. But they are amazing pollinators because they are so long-lived. But they are um, out and about. I counted many of those yesterday. And, again, the, the key is that bald abdomen. They are so easy to spot just because of that. They have some fur on their, thor- you know, the the back of their neck and their head area is furry. And I got some good pictures yesterday of some of those bees getting down into some pollen. But the bumblebees are the ones that are furry all over, and they're just made to carry pollen. see a lot of those. Good. And let's talk about that, folks, maybe that already participated yesterday or that plan to participate today when they get on social media. You said you have loved seeing some of the pictures that people are posting. So if I get on, let's say, Twitter, how am I going to find you know, the categorization of what people have posted already? Our main social media outlet is the Georgia Pollinator Census Facebook page. And we chose Facebook because teachers like it. They like being able to post pictures of their kids doing all these events and sharing it with the parents. So all of our pictures are posted there. It is, um, I've seen just beautiful shots of pollinators, pictures of kids in schools with their masks on, practicing social distancing, out in the garden, doing counts. Um, And then my favorite part of this census, and it happened last year and it's already happened today, is when I get a note from somebody who's new at this, and they sat down, they did their 15 minutes, and they say to me, I had no idea of the diversity of insects visiting my plants. And the key is that most of them are beneficial. Most of them are not pests. 
Yeah, and you know, so even if you're a, a little afraid of bees, it's not like you're going right. to get stung working on a project like this. You're just standing back observing nature do its thing. Exactly, and um, they're not interested in you. They're interested in that flower. All right, so here we are back live on Green and Growing. That was a previous interview I did with Becky Griffin from the University of Georgia back on Saturday, August 22nd, during the Great Georgia Pollinator Census. And, Becky, I've got you on the phone this morning. Thanks for coming back. I'm so excited to share with you all about what went on that weekend. I'm really anxious to hear, A, how we did, and then, B, what the data is able to tell you about our future and the pollinators' futures going forward. First, let's set the stage and remember uh, last year. In 2019, we had events all over the state. We had many schools participate. And now in the land of COVID, we were a little challenged, right? We had uh, schools, some going virtually. We did not have the events that we had in 2019. Ready for a drum roll. Ready. All right. We are over 3,700 people participating. That's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, it rained that weekend, Mm -hmm. so it was like the um, pollinator states were against us. But (laughs) I want to thank everybody who participated because this dedication, it is definitely a group citizen science effort. Out of 3,700 participants, what does their data tell you as far as what plants they observed and what pollinators they, they recorded on those plants? In response to the census 2020, we had 520 new pollinator gardens established. Wow. So when you add that to the over 2,000 that were established in 2019, that's a pretty big conservation effort for our pollinators. Regardless of what numbers show, we have increased pollinator habitat in the state of Georgia. And this is something, the census, that is only taken once a year, Becky, but in the meantime, for teachers who heard our conversation back in August or who are listening now, for folks that want to go forward and make sure they get involved in other ways or even just waiting until next year for the census, what do you advise that they do? Well, right now we're in fall and we are, um, you know, we're getting ready to kind of shut things down. So um, I'm thinking you're planning. You're planning what 2021 is going to look like. So that means how do I want to create or expand my pollinator garden next year? What do I want to add to it? What kind of insects do I want to garden for next year? And if you're a teacher... All of the resources are still up on the website. So the website is ggapc.org. And then how do they find you on social media? Georgia Pollinator Census Facebook page. We begin in January with how to build a pollinator garden for Georgia sustainably. And then we go into more insect identification and what insects are attracted to what plants. And then we do that leading up to August in the next census. Something to keep folks engaged year-round. Becky, congratulations on a big year. Those are great numbers, and thanks for sharing all of it with the listeners. Well, thank you for the opportunity, and and thank all your listeners. And again, it was definitely a collaborative effort. Yahoo to all those citizen scientists out there. Becky Griffin from the University of Georgia and coordinator of the Great Georgia Pollinator Census. And again, that Facebook page, just search Georgia Pollinator Census. We'll be right back on Green and Growing here on 95.5 WSB. I'm Channel 2 Action News meteorologist Brad Nitz. Low 70s today with a mostly cloudy sky, but we stay dry. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, low 56, high 71. Welcome back to Green and Growing. That weather update brought to you by Finley Roofing. So I have a friend of the show back on the line with me, Norm Mitleider, a certified aesthetic pruner who lives here in Metro Atlanta. We're lucky to have you, Norm. Good morning. 
Good morning, Ashley. So I will forever be grateful to you for setting me straight on pruning hydrangeas because I put a call out to the listeners for help and, and to you for help. It's just something I could never keep straight. And I remember I made you laugh with my little idioms or ways of remembering things when you and I were talking about pruning mop heads, which starts with an M. I kind of told myself, okay, if I can remember to prune those between March and May, since all of them start with M's, I'll be good to go. Remember that? Yes, very, very good. <laughs> I, whatever works, right? So yep. now here we are in the fall, and I want you to tell our listeners what they should be doing to their hydrangeas this time of year. Me personally, I really don't do too much with my hydrangeas, but I do know that there are some that like to clean them up, and some you can actually do a little shortening of the stems. Um, but my word of caution is that I w- would only deadhead, you know, to remove the old faded flower. And if you do shorten them, I would only shorten them by, you know, maybe six to ten inches. Because what you want to do is re- keep a good portion of the stem so that over winter, if the temperature drops, it's not freezing down the base of the plant and in the spring you'll be able to get you know the buds higher up which will produce more flowers so you're talking about the like say on a mop head the expired bloom head that's just sitting there it's crunchy and it's brown going down six to eight inches from the top of that correct and what about our panicle hydrangeas which we've enjoyed up until now of course they bloom later in the summer kind of a weeping form of hydrangea that the branches lay over and of course that cone-shaped bloom those are fun to clip off and dry once they've changed colors uh, oftentimes they'll go from maybe a green to a white to a pink but what do you recommend we do with those well with those because the paniculatas really aren't affected by the cold um, you can take them back a little bit harder. I wouldn't go, you know, taking them back more than a foot, but because if it did warm up, that might encourage them to sprout out too soon. But you certainly can obviously deadhead the flowers and shorten some of the stems so they don't flop as much so that you have a little bit cleaner looking plant. Norm, thanks so much for coming back on the show and setting me straight again about hydrangeas, when to prune, and how to prune. Well, coming up at the bottom of the hour in just a few short minutes, Pike Nursery going to join me. They'll have the plant that they're featuring for you this weekend and in the upcoming week, something that you'll see at every Pike Nursery location. Stay tuned to Green and Growing here on 95.5 WSB. It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. In case you miss any of this information-packed show today, go to wsbradio.com, click on On Demand, or listen to the three hours again on Spotify and Google Play. Right now, we're talking more about proper lawn health. You should be busy this time of year. I'm joined by Charles Lampkin, who manages the Marietta Pike Nursery off of Roswell Road. Charles, good morning. 
Hey, good morning, Ashley. It's nice to hear from you again. Thank you, because you are an expert here on something that's really been a theme of the show today, is really taking care of fescue lawn. It is the big month, the big time of year to be active with that fescue, and you've got different clients that are maybe looking to do different things, but the main thread is you've got to be doing something with your fescue this month. So let's start off with seeding. If it just didn't make it through the summer, looks kind of straggly, how can Pike Nursery help? Seeding fescue is we're, we're getting to the right time. Our warm, muggy, hot nights are done, and that's going to be kind of your window to say, hey, my fescue kind of got a little thin through the summer. I need to I need to improve it. I want this to look better. And now is the time. Now is the time all the way through October, uh, maybe till the beginning of November, and you have a, a good long window to do that. Yeah, if I were to walk into Pike Nursery now, and I've not done fescue seed before at all, what brands am I looking for, or what does the bag need to indicate to let me know that it's the right type? Our Pike Atlanta blend is, is going to be your best choice for the best blended fescue, predominantly the Rebels blend, which is a very popular and very successful type of fescue here in our region. What we would need to know from you would be the size of your lawn, the square footage of your lawn, because the old adage, more is better, does not apply to grass seed. <laughs> no. We need to, if you did put too much seed down, your lawn would come up wonderfully, and it would look beautiful and green for about a month, and then it would start to fizzle out, and basically the roots have just choked each other out. Uh, a pretty accurate estimate of, of your square footage, um, and then we can give you the appropriate amount of seed. And it will differ whether or not you're just overseeding or you might be seeding from scratch. Find one of us in the store, find myself, and we'll, be make, we'll make sure that you're successful with your overseeding. Now, sod is something that I know you have in your inventory. And who would we be speaking to? What kind of lawn owner that may come to Pike Nursery and, and want to go the sod route instead? A lot of customers have unfortunately had to take down some trees or they've moved into a new location. They don't like their current grass situation. So the sod varieties we're carrying right now, we still are carrying Bermuda. Uh, we're getting to the end of our zoysia, but fescue is coming on and it's coming on strong. Unfortunately, this week, due to the amount of rain, it doesn't look like our, our farm is going to be able to cut any sod. But from here through the fall, we'll be carrying some fescue sod as well. Something we get calls about is folks that are wanting to use ryegrass, whether it's in a situation on a Bermuda lawn or a zoysia lawn, and that is something you all have at Pike, right? It is. There's three instances where we might want to use ryegrass. Some people don't like the looks of their brown lawns in the winter, that being Bermuda and zoysia like you spoke of, so you can put overseed with that and have a green lawn through the winter. Let's say you missed the boat. Zoysia sod, you want to get down or you should have gotten down earlier, and you don't want to put it down later in the season, but you have an area in the lawn that's just bare, and you need something there temporarily. That's what's great about the ryegrass. It is an annual grass, so it is going to die off as soon as the temperatures get a little hotter. We're looking around sometime around May, and as soon as it dies off, then you have the right time window to get your zoysia lawn down. And then lastly, um, a lot of people mixing some ryegrass with their fescue seed, and it just mm. helps with germination and, and keeping that lawn really nice. Now, if I do not plan on seeding, I'm going to go ahead and be able to get ahead of those winter weeds. What brands are we looking at there? Or again, keywords on the bag when we're looking at a pre-emergent herbicide. As far as pre-emergence, 
Pike does carry its own label, Pike Crabgrass Preventer. Don't let that label fool you. It prevents over 500 other weeds, too. Um, we also carry some Bonide products, Crabgrass Plus. One of those products that has a pre- and post-emergent in it as well. You know, you can go ahead and put that down, and you'll be preventing your winter weeds from coming up, and you can be killing some of your weeds that are still present. And then fertilizing we're talking about healthy fescue lawns. They did well through summer and they're looking great. We can go with a regular lawn starter fertilizer around this time. And then if we are starting a lawn, we do sell a lawn starter blend that has enough nitrogen in it to promote green and growth, but also has a lot of phosphorus in it to, to help start a healthy root system. And you said green and growth, which is so key in knowing when and whether or not to use a fertilizer on your lawn. You've got to establish that difference between whether you have the warm season or the cool season. And of course, you want to apply that fertilizer when something's actively growing. Otherwise, it's just not really doing any good. How do we find your locations, Charles? PikeNursery.com. You can check out a lot of cool information on our Facebook and Instagram page as well. Check out our website. All of our locations are now suitable to take online orders, and we look forward to growing that part of our company. Charles, good to have you back. I really appreciate the knowledge today. And I look forward to hearing from you soon. You're listening to Green and Growing right here on WSB. I am happy to bring experts to the show to give you the best advice possible. And Clint Waltz is a great friend of mine. Met him through Walter, and he's been on the show once before. So extension turf grass specialist for the University of Georgia, works down at the Griffin campus. Clint, hey, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Ashley. Happy to be back. You are a leading expert on everything Georgia Turf, and I want to direct folks to the website too, Clint, georgiaturf.com. They can find out a lot of information they may need to know. But right here, we're going to be talking about lawn myths. We've done this once before, and I'm ready to run some things by you again. You ready? Let's see where it goes. There has been talk in the industry whether or not it's proper to use lawn clippings as compost. Some say it's good for the lawn, provides nitrogen, but others say it could carry weed seeds and just be detrimental to the lawn. What do you think? This has actually got some fairly good research behind it. I'm aware of a colleague that did uh, some of her Ph.D. work, and it was up in Connecticut, I believe it was. But she actually showed that returning clippings back to the lawn, uh, and we like to refer to that as grass cycling. If you do that, you can wind up returning about a third of your nutrients back so and actually reduce your fertilizer inputs that you need by about a third on an annual basis by just returning your clippings. Now, I think the caveat to that is you can't let the grass grow too tall. So you need to wind up maintaining the one-third mowing rule. So as long as you're moving no more than one-third of the leaf canopy in one single mowing and letting those clippings fall back into the the canopy, the soil microbes will break those down, will mineralize the the nutrients, and make them back available again to to the plant. As far as those weed seeds, weeds are going to wind up applying seed back anyway. We don't have to keep emptying the bag every few passes, so very good. All right, we'll stick with the mower. I have never even changed the height of my mower blade, wouldn't even know how to do it. Why is that important? Well, maintaining the proper mowing height for the species of grass that you're growing um, is, is just best for the, that particular species. So, for example, something like Bermuda grass or zoysia grass is best maintained at uh, one to two inches of mowing height, whereas something like St. Augustine grass or tall fescue, those two species really do much better at higher mowing heights. So having the mower set for the particular grass that you're growing is what's going to be best for the grass and give it an opportunity to have a stronger root system and survive periodic stresses like drought or heat or pests or, or what have you. 
and speak to the importance, too, of keeping the blades sharpened as well. Oh, um, sharp blades always improve things, improves the quality and appearance. It reduces the physiological stresses on the grass plant itself of having to recover from from a bad wound, because you got to think of it, anytime you mow, you're, you're creating a wound on that plant. So you want to have as fresh and easy a wo- or easy to heal wound as possible, as opposed to a ragged, torn up wound. So uh, sharp mower blades go a, a long way towards maintaining proper health and, and growth of your turf. Here is a question that has probably been called into garden shows around the country, Clint. So this one, put your thinking cap on. I call on a garden show. Hey, there's got to be a product you can recommend that'll bring my lawn back to life where Fido keeps using the bathroom and it's killing the grass in spots. (laughs) Well, uh, it's not really a product (laughs) or a chemical, or you might would say that chemical would be hydrated oxygen or water Um, (laughs) is urea and it's a salt. So most of what you're seeing out there is a salt burn. So if, if you've got a situation where your dog goes to the restroom in the same area of the lawn, lightly irrigating that and washing that salt off is, is going to be the best thing you can to reduce that burn or phytotoxicity that, that you're likely to see on some, some grasses. And some grass species are more sensitive. Um, believe it or not, zoysia grass, which actually has pretty good salt hardiness to it, I've seen in the landscape show far more pet urine burn than, than some other species out there. But Lightly irrigating some of that in on a daily or every other day kind of basis and removing some of that salt burn is about as, as good as so water is going to be the best thing for you there. Next is one that I just thought of, too, another reoccurring call. People just, I think, uh, thumping their head against a tree sometimes with this one. Recommending a grass. They're looking for a grass that will grow in full shade. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I, I think there the myth would be is that grasses will grow in full shade, and most of them don't. Most of our, uh, the most shade persistent or hardy turf species we have, uh, I'm comfortable with down to about three and a half to four hours of filtered to intermittent sun a day. And that can be tall fescue and some of our soysia grasses uh, on those. But if they get in less than, than that, then it's really a, a site that's not well suited for turf grass at all. And my attitude is I'm looking for a grass that maintains commercial acceptability down to a particular amount of shade. You get below three and a half uh, hours of filtered intermittent sun. Some of these grasses will persist and hang on, but they don't hold what I think is a commercially acceptable appearance and look. Generally, that's when homeowners are unhappy and, and that type of thing. Yeah, there's grass there, but it's thin, it's open, it's unthrifty, it's not growing, it's not particularly aggressive. It's there. Um, as my granddaddy would say, it's holding the world together, but that's about it um, kind of thing. It's not giving that attractive appearance that a lawn and grass should. You know, we've got some tall fescues uh, that, that will go down to, like I said, about four hours. We've got three and a half, four hours. Some zoysia grasses down to about four hours. St. Augustine grass, maybe four and a half to five hours uh, on some of those. But that's uh, a filter to intermittent sun during the growing season. But Anything less than that, you'd lead to probably be looking at mulch or a shade-hardy ornamental. Good recommendations there. Okay, I've got one more for you, Clint, because this is September. This is a great time to think about seeding um, a fescue lawn or overseeding Bermuda grass in some cases. But set us straight on the order in which we need to, A, seed the grass. That's really important because we want a good lawn for the spring. But also we want to use a pre-emergent around this time of year, too, to get ahead of the winter weeds. So how do we go about doing both without one canceling the other one out? I guess the easy answer on that is if you're going to seed, you got to get the seed out first. Because uh, a pre-emergent herbicide that's going to be there for weed seed will do the same thing to a tall, uh, tall fescue seed. So if you put out your pre-emergence here in September and you come back in and seed in October, 
that pre-emergence is going to work just as well on that tall fescue as it would on annual bluegrass that's germinating in September, October as well. So the simple answer is that uh, you'd seed first and then you'd wind up putting your pre-emergence out later. Where it gets more complex is by waiting on that tall fescue to germinate and come on uh, and start to, to grow before you put your pre-emergence down. Well, many of your weed seed have probably already germinated already, so the pre-emergence isn't going to do you a lot of good. So if you need to do a lot of seeding or add a lot of seed back to it, then you're probably not going to do a whole lot of pre-emergence um, applications, and you have to control your weeds post-emergently in the, uh, later in the winter or early spring. That's good news and bad news. You're absolutely right. But one thing, other than a pre-emergent, of course, one thing that's the best weed preventer of all is just making that turf a lot more strong, right? Absolutely. I like to say it's the best defense and the strong offense. Ooh, so yeah. if, if our grass is the strong offense and is growing growing aggressively, then it's going to uh, compete well or favorably with, with any weed species that are coming on, too. So absolutely. And, and if I had my choice, if you've got a, let's just say, marginal to, to thin stand of tall fescue, I think you're better off to come in and seed and try to do everything you can to improve the stand and hardiness of that tall fescue than trying to control the weeds pre-emergently. Well, Clint, thank you so much for your time, and I'm excited to tell folks that you're going to be back on the show, and this time we'll have an opportunity for you to take calls on October 17th, so I'm going to keep promoting ahead to that because I know folks will want to ask you their burning lawn questions, so October 17th, Clint will be back for a couple of hours. October's not far away, even, you know, here we are now, so <laughs> looking forward to it, actually, I always have a good time on Saturday mornings with you and Walter in the past, so looking forward to it. Take care. I'm Channel 2 Action News meteorologist Brad Nitz. Low 70s today with a mostly cloudy sky, but we stay dry. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, low 56, high 71. We've got just enough time left in today's show as we wrap things up to share this with you. Green Green and growing. Ashley Frasca's top three things to do this weekend. All right, according to my friend that you've heard from on this show, certified aesthetic pruner Norm Mitleider, you can trim Japanese maples now. Only cut out, though, the dead limbs and duplicate branch systems that are crowding one another. Number two, if you haven't already, seed your lawn for tall fescue. We've talked about it the entire show. Broadcast seed in one direction and then kind of go back in a direction diagonal to that to ensure good seed drop and then make sure it gets watered well. And number three, fire ants are most active in warm weather, and you can treat them as you see them, but fall's the best time to fight them and apply baits right now. Consider using boiling water even to treat a mound that's near an area where you want to be a little more organic and you don't want to use any chemicals. Well, my thanks to all of my guest experts today for making this show as full of factual knowledge as it could be today. I'm really proud of this show. And again, go on wsbradio.com, click on On Demand or Google Play or Spotify to listen to the show again. Have a great weekend and we'll talk to you Monday morning. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.